Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions, and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, I'm pleased to have Dr. Anil Mishra as my guest. Dr. Mishra is a well-known scholar in the study of trust and its impact on companies and the relationships between employees and leaders. He has written a variety of articles on the topic, as well as multiple books on trust with his wife and frequent co-author, Karen. Anil was recently appointed to serve as the Dean of the University of Michigan at Flint's School of Management. During our conversation, we delve into all things trust, what it is, how to try to measure it, and how it plays out in companies in times of crisis and stress. We then go deep on the relationship between trust and technology and spend time talking about our understanding of its impact on the development of trust in organizations. As you can probably guess, there's still a lot to learn as the hybrid workplace becomes a reality at more and more companies. We wrap up by getting Anil's take on the future of technology's impact on trust and whether he is optimistic about the new era we've stepped into. A personal note on Anil. I had the privilege to work alongside him while he was at the Wake Forest School of Business, and he is a fine teacher and an even better person. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Anil, welcome to Cut the Shit. It's great to have you. Hey. Great to be here, Brian. It's been a long been time. A long, yes, definitely. It has been a long time. I'm trying to think. I don't know that I've seen you in... When did you leave Wake Forest? Uh, 2009. Okay, so I probably last time I saw you was probably 08, 07, 08, somewhere in that range. So it's been, it's been a bit. You've held on to your hair. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait a minute. I don't remember you having that much hair when, when hey, you were hey, at Wake hey. Forest. <laughs> you know, for the sake of the audience. I got gotcha. you. So, uh, so tell us where you are today. So, uh, as of two months ago, I became the dean of the School of Management, University of Michigan Flint. It was a great opportunity to be a dean, which is something I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, I've decided rather than complain about the problem, I want to be the problem. But no, I think um, as somebody who spent the last three decades looking at how leaders build trust and um, create positive change, I think it's my time to apply a lot of those lessons learned. Uh, it was also a chance to come back home. Uh, I was going to say, that's home, right? Right. Uh, in-laws are about an hour away. Uh, launch awesome. morning, so I have some time <laughs> to prepare. I uh, know I've got some uh, three young nephews within an hour or so. So we're about 45 minutes from where we grew up. And uh, today is actually a balmy day in Michigan. We've got about 42 degrees. So <laughs> Oh, I was going to people be in short sleeves to be outside. Yeah. yeah. feels like spring already. Yeah, uh, no, not I think to it was, rub it in, but it's going to be uh, 71 here today. So. Yes, we get a daily uh, weather report from our son who plays golf on a regular basis. So he was talking about how it was nippy in the 60s yesterday. It's like yeah, he had to put on the jacket. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, have you been traveling much lately? I, I I've started to ask this question a little bit now, just as things have been opening up, because I'm always curious to hear what that's like for people because the, the experiences are different depending on where people are going. So just how about you? Yeah, it's funny I should ask that because I, I've kind of noted how uh, travel for me has changed over the last couple of years. So I did some traveling, uh, would have been around December of 2020, got on a plane, uh, had some recommendations from a physician friend who I went to college with. So not only do I have the mask on, I've got the uh, 
eye goggles on to kind of protect myself from any positive, you know, airflow coming in <clears throat> and um, having to show that I've already uh, tested negative before I could even enter the state of Massachusetts, all that kind of stuff. So it felt like I was uh, almost like an alien traveling, you know, almost with a spacesuit on and then yeah, I get sure. into the planet called Massachusetts. So uh, fast forward a few more months. Um, we actually uh, flew back uh, last January for uh, 80th birthday party that had been de delayed for a year for my father-in-law. And uh, yeah, we had to wear our masks, but it was just quite different in terms of the uh, tenor of, you know, the flight attendants, the passengers and so forth. Um, and I'll be flying again to New Orleans in April for a conference. Uh, so I think um, I think it's way overdue. You know, I, I'd like to get back to something called I think we'll be forever changed as a result of this pandemic, but something that approaches normalcy. Sure. I think every, I think everybody. I mean, I think it's a if there's one unifying force in the United States today, it's probably what you just said. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Wanted to get back to some sense of normalcy and. Exactly. Uh, uh, you know, I think we're getting close, so that's that's a good thing. Well, um, trust guy too. It's helpful to uh, let's take off our masks so we can see one another and get to know one another. Yeah, we kind of discounted that, I think, to our peril um, over the last couple years. I mean, early on, it made a lot of sense. As you know, the more we learned, it probably made less sense. But you know, public policies, it's like turning a boat around a lot of time, even even when it comes to emergency situations. So uh, I don't know. I, I think I worry about what younger children in, you know, in, in, you know, specifically have, have lost in terms of that facial recognition and the oh. exchange of nonverbal communication, how much of it is from the, what we do with our face. But, I, I think uh, public officials across party lines, across, you know, federal, state, and local, they're going to have a lot to answer for because I think we've done enormous damage to our young people, not just yeah. Kate, well, but even our college students. Who yeah, I mean, I got a son who's a junior in college, and he lost a full year face-to-face, -face, uh, you know, education. Couldn't even be on campus. And then this fall, at least they were on campus, but still, you know, pretty limited in in the in the get-together phase. Um, and you know, that's a real loss for him. I, I'm, you know, his problems are not what a lot of people's problems are, but it nevertheless, it's a loss for no, sure. Same for our son who uh, had three and a half years at least. Um, at Carolina as an undergrad, then had to pivot to online to finish his senior year. Uh, he then uh, stayed to get his master's in accounting, which was a face-to-face -face program. And each quarter or term or semester, they're saying, no, we'll be back to campus. And it never happened. And he feels yeah. like not only does he get a discount, he should get a discount, which he isn't going to get on his tuition. But it's like he feels robbed of a big chunk of that learning. And Yeah, and so for sure, for sure. Um, so before we jump in, I, I thought since you've been in in this in the academic world and in business school for such a while, I thought you might um, might have an interesting answer to this question. Um, it's a little bit of a curveball, so if you don't have anything good, that's fine. But you know, tell us what in your mind what's the most interesting use of technology that you've seen a student you know deploy? Maybe a hack, maybe something in you know something interesting that you've seen that's technology related. You've seen a student because they're you know they're pretty ingenious. So I, I, I'm figuring you've probably seen a lot and it could be, it could be for cheating. It could be for good purposes. I don't know what, but, but what, what have you seen? Well, you know, I'm not sure if, as someone who's always trying to I, um, adopt new technology, new tools and so forth. Uh, for me, I think it's been more the way they've triangulated a set of tools to get at truth, you know? So they're not only going to listen to what I'm going to say, 
they're going to fact check it with Reddit or YouTube or uh, their peers, you know, through um, texting and other kinds of social media. And I think that's all to the good because I want them to be very smart consumers of information. Um, I like to joke that I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the truth is somewhere between <laughs> uh, those two editorial pages uh, and so forth. But I think actually our mainstream media have gotten harder uh, to uh, utilize as a single source of, you know, truth or critical information. Uh, it's becoming more and more important that people are savvy about where else can they get that information and not to trust any particular one. So when someone, including my own children, uh, say they read something on Reddit about uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia, or um, they saw something on YouTube. In fact, I just pushed out something on LinkedIn from uh, Ukrainian uh, friend I just developed a week ago. So she and I are going to talk about uh, joint programs between her uh, business school and Lviv, uh, or Lviv, depending on how you pronounce it, and um, School of Management. And so she simply asked me to share um, some uh, take on propaganda that Putin had been pushing out as a way to discount the messaging that's going on on social media from uh, from the Russians. And so I gladly shared it on LinkedIn and I've already gotten hundreds of people to look at it and share it. Right, so right. Uh, I think for me, it's more a multiple set of tools that students are using to uh, to figure out how the world's working. Right, right. Well, that that's probably a good place for us to get started. So um, we already talked a little bit about where you are, but you're an academic. You're the dean at the University of Michigan, Flint. Um, uh, you've been in a business school professor for a while, but why don't you give us kind of take us back, give us a quick thumbnail sketch on kind of your career kind of before academia and then up to today. Again, just hit the, hit the highlights for us. Sure. Uh, no big surprise that I ultimately became a professor. I was a geek in high school. and um, But I think in having a father who was a professor at Michigan State in journalism, so that's also another way to talk about truth. Um, I think if I hadn't worked at General Motors after Princeton, I did that for about four years, what used to be Oldsmobile and then uh, the powertrain division, uh, I might have stayed in uh, business long term if I'd gone to work for a tech company or something that was dynamic. But four years of that uh, bureaucracy at General Motors convinced me that dad was right. So I went to Michigan, Ann Arbor for uh, my PhD. My wife was already getting her MBA there. Uh, we have uh, three other brothers between us, so we're maize and blue all the way through when it comes to uh, football and other things. But uh, it was a great time to be at Michigan. Uh, we had a great set of professors, some of who were purely uh, scholars, others who were had spent decades in industry and then people in the middle. Um, again, to get at truth, I had a lot of different perspectives uh, to bring to bear. And what I studied, uh, I went back to the auto industry and studied a crisis. It was the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of turmoil uh, that GM and the big three, as they were called, and their suppliers were going through. But I found a few companies and organizations that seemed to really be thriving in this chaos. And so I simply ask them what makes the difference between what you are doing and achieving and uh, the rest of your uh, colleagues. And they said, well, it's because uh, our employees trust us, because the UAW trusts us. So I figured I need to go back to the drawing board for my model and figure out what is trust if it's so important. So I figured that out uh, by doing <clears throat> interviews with you know, dozens of executives. And then I did a survey with hundreds of top management team members in about 90 organizations and found out that trust it uh, really comes down to four things. It's being reliable, open and honest, competent, and caring or compassionate. It's what we call the, croc uh, the rock of trust. When I first spelled it out in my dissertation, my wife's reading the chapter goes, you know, that spells crock. You might want to reorder the chapter. <laughs> I still think I'd have a great uh, career with Pottery Barn or those glazing 
mom and pop shops with crockery, but yeah, it's the rock, not the crockery. Yeah, the devil, the devil meaning there kind of can hurt you. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So then I uh, went to Penn State, uh, spent five years there, came back to Michigan for a year, and then spent a, a wonderful decade at Wake Forest um, because it was a great fit between what they wanted and what I wanted to be, which is a teacher scholar, uh, great students, uh, great colleagues. Um, but then uh, that became my journey to become a dean. So I went to Michigan State for a couple years to run executive ed and be an associate dean there. Uh, came back, left academia for a year, joined a tech company to build online degrees, uh, which was great. I learned how tech is a young person's world. I'm managing 20, 30, and 35 somethings. You know, I'm in my 40s. Uh, you talk about technology, I've never done more multitasking in my life. So we're on a conference call. While people are texting, there's email, there's a phone conversation, all while the president is screaming at us to get our uh, projects uh, launched. That's interesting. We're we're going to get to that very point um, as we talk about uh, a little bit about technology and trust. That'll be an interesting one. So, what's going on? To use that uh, that phrase. So then, uh, I had a chance to become a dean, associate dean at a historically black college and university in Durham. Uh, that was really transformative in my leadership uh, development. I can talk more about that if you want. And then um, I got went back to the good life of being a professor at East Carolina, had an endowed chair in leadership, uh, and then U of M Flint came calling. So uh, I've kind of gone back and forth between the private sector and higher ed. Uh, and also, I think I've had a wide variety of institutions in higher ed to learn from and to build a, a new strategy, I think. Well, that's awesome. Um... Again, we got to know each other when you were at Wake uh, as a professor, and I was actually working there. I was in the business school, but I never had the, I never had the good fortune of having you as a classroom teacher. Which maybe that's maybe that's why you're willing to come on this podcast. I'm not sure, but um, re- regardless, you were well regarded there, and you know, I always thought the, the the subject matter that you were studying was super interesting, um, because it's one of those things that I think a lot of us probably acknowledge. If someone were to say out loud, well, trust matters, no one's going to no one's going to go, well, that's stupid like that. They I think everyone sort of knows that. But what do you do with it and and what does it mean? And I think that's where, you know, I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. Um, in those in that early work, kind of around the dissertation and early stages, how much were you trying to get at the impact of trust on business performance? And then and and what did that look like in terms of I'll use the word quantified. Maybe that's not the right word, but but establish a causal relationship. What what did you find in 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 that work? You know, it's really a, a interesting question because uh, at the time I had all the survey data, which pretty clearly showed that trust mattered in terms of um, employees' perceptions. And I did some follow-up studies with Allied Signal and the aerospace industry to show that trust uh, first, if you have it in your top management team or your supervisor. Uh, you'll certainly feel uh, a greater sense of commitment to the organization. <clears throat> you'll be um, more empowered to do what you think is important on behalf of the organization. So it does help align employees with uh, with the organization's purpose if there's that trust. But does it really matter in a bottom line sense? So then that became the next part of the, the validation effort. And so with aerospace, so a very different industry, that was one effort to kind of cross-validate my initial findings. We also learned, though, it mattered in a bottom line sense in that it significantly reduced voluntary turnover. So people were not only saying they liked the place, they stuck around and they actually stuck around uh, during a crisis period for the aerospace industry, or at least this uh, company Allied Signal was going through some restructuring. So just when you really need uh, the talent that's gonna help you get out of that crisis, most often it leaves for better pas- greener pastures. 
Uh, but if you have that trust, they'll stick it out and, and share their fate with you. Um, and then I actually went full circle, and this happened about um, a little bit more than a year ago. <clears throat> I built out a global research team with uh, people from England and Australia and then people actually in North Carolina um, to look at, go back and revisit my dissertation data sets. I'd actually never examined the uh, bottom line, the quantitative performance. Um, I don't even know why I never looked at the data, but I think it was just a matter of circumstances and not always having the time. So I went back and then started uh, relating all my survey data to business unit performance in two different ways. One uh, was return on sales for those business units uh, for about a year to two after the surveys were collected. And then also uh, their objective quality performance measured as defects per million. Again, it's a manufacturing uh, context and found that um, trust really does matter, but not directly. So it's its process by which it um, encourages a top management team to share power with one another because typically it's a top down kind of a, a hierarchical uh, situation. But if they trust each other, they share power with one another. The top manager uh, delegates power to the top management team. And then it also facilitates uh, a greater integration of the very uh, diverse perspectives they bring to bear. So my working idea in my dissertation was the best team at the top's got a lot of diversity, uh, especially in terms of their cognitive uh, perspective. Uh, they share power and they have trust um, because it's a very complex set of problems to work through in a crisis. You better have a lot of different perspectives to bring to bear rather than just one idea. Uh, but all that diversity doesn't matter if people aren't free to share their ideas and have them um, voiced and then also do I want to share information which might include stuff about how I'm not underperforming in my part of the business? Uh, I'm not going to share that sensitive or uh, kind of vulnerable information if I don't trust you. So anyway, we found right. out though, that it matters really significantly if a business unit wants to perform its, uh, improve its uh, financial performance and its quality performance, they better have trust at the top. Gotcha, gotcha. And again, it makes sense, but it's good to, it's nice to know that, you know, you've been able to sort of figure out a you know prove it right we were talking earlier a little bit about truth and and right the academic process right and the scientific method is about trying to get closer and closer to truth right uh, you know capital t truth you know we live in a postmodern world where it's sometimes you know truth is i won't say it's a dirty word but uh, but some people think it's a scam or it's you know it's it's just power whoever's got the most power and and all those things are s sort of true right but we're, that doesn't mean we should give up on it at least in my perspective and you've committed your life's work to that so i don't think i have to convince you of that no um, you're I, I was blessed to get out of michigan by 1992 just as deconstructionism and uko and derrida and others yeah uh, are saying there really isn't any objective truth and i agree to some extent that truth is relative about certain things but i also think there is First of all, some higher truth, and I also think that there is, as you said, the scientific method. Um, at least we're approximating much more effectively what real truth is. Right. Now right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's pivot a bit from so so that core research, kind of the basis or sort of the I guess the foundational work upon which you built your career. Um, it didn't sound like at least early on there was uh, at least a thought of well, how might technology play into or the impact of technology on trust. I'm guessing that that has perhaps informed some of your research or at least research within the field as we've gone forward. So talk a little bit about that. Have you had the occasion to study the impact of technology on trust in any kind of dimensions? Yeah, so this is more of uh, initially some qualitative research that I've been doing for the last decade almost now. So the next step, of course, is to validate it with these quantitative um, performance measurements. But we've learned 
Um, first of all, that trust matters not only in a crisis, but it matters in growth contexts. So that was kind of the next step of our uh, uh, validation work. Karen and I started, look, I got tired of being Dr. Death and looking at downsizing organizations. <clears throat> so we started looking at healthy, rapidly growing organizations. I think uh, that's when I was coming to Wake Forest. So we work with two men in a truck um, and they've grown from a $350 investment to about a half a billion dollar year of business. And we would argue it's because they had trust at the top, but also trust within their franchise system, several hundred franchises that they had established a great deal of trust with, which created a lot of flexibility and collaborative capability that then led to better financials. But then we started saying, what does it look like in cross-cultural contexts? So I started working with Lenovo and they manage a bunch of teams, virtual teams, uh, remote teams across China, South America, uh, and uh, actually, you know, the, the research triangle area uh, in North Carolina. And initially they found that uh, they didn't really have a lot of trust because these product um, software development teams had pieces of the whole um, project or uh, task. And yet they assumed that each other's portions of those tasks were the better portions, the easier portions. So it wasn't until um, actually it was a, a next door neighbor of ours who was the head of uh, e-commerce sales and so forth um, brought these teams together physically and then actually had them switch assignments and then they were able to actually work virtually much more effectively because that virtual connection they had uh, to date had not really promoted enough trust um, they needed to see each other face to face work together uh, in real time and realize oh my gosh you actually have the crap assignment. <laughs> you know, we have a pretty good deal down here in Argentina. So I think to me, um, one of my big um, uh, kind of management scholars that I, uh, I want to emulate is Jim Collins, good to great, built to last. <clears throat> and um, he always uh, counseled people to avoid the tyranny of either or, you know, either a high tech solution or a face to face solution. Right. Uh, I think it's really both. And I think up front to develop that trust, you do need to have that face to face interaction. Uh, what I've learned both uh, as a scholar, as a leader um, in the academic world and in the private sector is that once you've established that trust, it does require a fair amount of face to face interaction. You can actually move much faster. And that's where technology then accelerates that speed. So once you have that trust established, you can get people to, uh, the, first of all, when you're trying to delegate to others, they got to trust you as much as you have to trust them for that delegation or that empowerment to take place. Because sure, I trust you, but if they don't trust me, they don't want to accept that responsibility. Right. So once I've established that trust, we can run really quickly. And that's where technology is so critical. Now, one exception to that, um, you know, having to do all that face-to-face -face interaction up front uh, is this global research team. So Karen and I have been mentoring uh, an academic in Birmingham, England. Uh, I only have met her virtually through conferences, um, but we took it upon ourselves to help this junior scholar uh, develop a research program and so forth. She was a postdoc. She's now been able to get uh, a tenure uh, track position as a result of this work together. All we've ever done uh, is use technological, um, you know, it's all been mediated, this communication through technology. Right. Now, thank God for WhatsApp because she's a big fan of that and uh, for our Zoom meetings, but uh, we will say things in a WhatsApp conversation that I probably wouldn't even say face-to-face -face with a bunch of other people. So again, if you have this trust, technology isn't a barrier to building greater trust. It actually right. enhances the ability. Does that make sense? It, it makes ton, a ton of sense. You know, my daughter is new to the workforce. 
she like it sounds like your son uh, graduated from undergrad in May of 2020. You know, so she spent the second half of her senior, second half of her sec last semester of her senior year, you know, at home, um, like the rest of the world, um, and then about six months here trying to, you know, there maybe wasn't a worse time to get a job than May, 2020 uh, in a lot of ways, especially for an entry level person. Um, she got a job um, and started working and worked in an office environment for about the first six, eight months and is now working, took a new job in the same organization and is working remotely from her apartment. Um, you know, she's 20, she's getting ready to turn 24, uh, hasn't had a lot of work experience in, uh, you know, in in face-to-face environments or other things, and she's actually working with the San Francisco office of her, uh, San Francisco office of her company, and you know, trying to figure that out. I have I have a lot of questions about about how that's going to work. You know, in terms of not having the face-to-face and not having built the skills for that, but I don't know if it's going to matter. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I mean, I'm just, we'll see, I guess. Well, it's funny you should mention that because Jack graduated with his master's of accounting um, and then had a choice to either go to Ernst Young in Raleigh or PwC in Charlotte. Um, Charlotte would have been his preferred uh, location, but the job opportunity, Ernst Young, I think from a content standpoint, was the better job. So we took the job in Raleigh. Um, He's been working remotely ever since he got his job offer, right? You know, he's got his badge and everything else, but it's all a virtually mediated environment. Here's the thing that's helped him, though, and I think he's, you know, learned from his parents um, or learned from his dad, at least. Uh, he's become a huge user of the phone, right? He is on the phone on a regular basis with one of his higher level managers, who's turned out to be a wonderfully supportive mentor to him. Um, but if he didn't have phone conversations and it's not Zoom stuff, it's just getting on the phone and I think sometimes phones are liberating because you can you don't have to worry about your facial expressions. Right. You're not presenting yourself. I think you can be actually more of who you are on the phone. Uh, sometimes you can also roll your eyes and nobody's going to notice it. <laughs> but um, so he's used really kind of older technology to facilitate a development of really some deep trust. And in fact, uh, I'll give a shout out to a, a, a Babcock alum, Wake Forest alum, Bill Hobbs. I reached out to Bill when Jack was on the job market and I said, you know, Jack would really benefit from some informational interview uh, time with you just to learn more about Ernst and Young and your career uh, between finance and accounting, all the different wonderful things you've done. Uh, Bill not only agreed to do an informational interview with Jack, he has been mentoring Jack every month on the phone for upwards of an hour. And, you know, now, yes, Bill's getting something out of it. Jack ended up joining his same firm. But if it wasn't for that phone time, because, you know, they might each be traveling or on the road right. or whatever. They can't do a Zoom thing. Uh, Jack, I think, would be almost lost because he doesn't have that face-to-face connection right now with all the people he works with. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It, it, it does lead to another question around this idea of remote work and remote, remote learning. What are you seeing in terms of the research? Where Where's sort of the trust research in the mix on this? What what are people finding? It's early, so what are they finding? Well, <clears throat> so I have a huge bias in favor of face-to-face learning, but for the last seven years, I've taught half of my courses at East Carolina uh, purely uh, remotely, right? Asynchronously, some synchronous conversations, but for the most part, asynchronous, which is, you know, definition of one-way communication. Um, and I was really, um, kind of worried that I wouldn't be able to reach my students, they wouldn't learn as well. 
Uh, I learned something in the last seven years, which has now been confirmed in a, in a number of other different environments, that uh, half the world are not who I am. They're introverts, or they lean that way, right? They don't uh, think by talking through things. They really think by uh, listening, and then maybe through writing or other ways of communicating, uh, sharing their thoughts and ideas. And I actually have have had much more thoughtful conversations uh, in my leadership courses, which were the ones that were remote. Now, a lot of different reasons for that. You know, they can have the time to respond in writing thoughtfully to a discussion board. Uh, but I think it also takes into account learning styles and, again, personalities. Um, Karen and I had to pivot our um, leadership program. We teach through Wharton for the American Bankers Association every year in June. A couple hundred bankers were doing leadership development work with them over the course of several days. And back in 2020, they said, we can't do this anymore. we got to do it remotely. Anybody want to volunteer? So we did. Had to learn a different technology, uh, blue jeans rather than Zoom. Right. Um, again, I was both pleasantly surprised and a little bit horrified that we actually had great conversations with a couple hundred bankers remotely. You know, we're managing multiple breakout rooms and chats and everything else. Now, again, how much of it has the introverts finally got to have their uh, day in the sun? Or is it... Um, People are getting a little bit more comfortable with technology. Uh, we did it again virtually last um, June. That worked quite well. Now we're going to be back face to face this June in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm going to hope that they've had enough Zoom fatigue that they'll say we're glad to be back face to face. But I think we're in a hybrid world going forward forever. Uh, I was always been a hybrid kind of person. That's why I became a professor. I worked at home for my writing. Uh, even with young children, I had more quiet time right. to do that. Uh, so I was critically dependent on technology to be able to get work done. Uh, now I'm even more dependent on it. But for me, it's always going to have to be that blend then of real in-person, in-the-flesh kind of interaction <clears throat> uh, coupled with uh, uh, technology. Here's a piece of technology that I have yet to uh, exploit or the potential of online uh, learning, uh, and that is to make it much more collaborative. And I don't mean peer-to-peer, student-to-student, uh, or even peer to um I'm sorry, student to uh, faculty. So there's collaboration that's taking place that way. <laughs> I think we're at the very beginning, um, beginnings of collaboration with subject matter experts, alumni. I can beam people into a classroom every week in a way I could not get a CEO to get on a plane to come to Winston-Salem to spend an hour with us, right? So I think a lot of that collaborative um, or networked learning that's been going on now for 20 plus years outside the classroom um, I think the smart deans, the smart professors, we're going to start to leverage that, bring that in. Um, and I think that's another way that technology can fulfill its promise in a way that it hasn't done so far. So kind of, to, I think, to sort of bring this full circle from from the audience perspective, what would you what would you want a business leader to understand about the relationship between technology and trust? If there's something that they could sort of bring to the to the office, so to speak. Sure. I, I think it comes back to, so Karen and I are finishing our uh, second edition of our leadership book, and we're actually calling it uh, Intentional Leadership, How to Become a Trustworthy Leader. That's the, the tagline at the end of the title. The reason we're calling it intentional is it really does come down to, does a leader or a wannabe leader really do things from a deliberate or proactive way, or are they just waiting to have leadership thrust on them or maybe make it up as they go along. Because the best leaders that we've worked with uh, have quite deliberately, and it may have taken them decades sometimes, uh, created a path where they're going to build trust with a wide variety of stakeholders, and as a result, really create some lasting positive change. So as it relates to technology, 
uh, I think it comes down to how are you going to intend to use this technology? Because I think technology really does undermine trust when it's used as a way to uh, cement or uh, extend further managerial control over people, right? So we're becoming much more adept now at monitoring not just people's performance outcomes, but their actual behaviors, whether it's keystrokes or yep. you know time logged in uh, on your computer and so forth. Uh, if that's the way you're going to use technology, you're going to undermine trust, and the smartest people are going to say, I'm done with this. I'll go somewhere else where the presumption is that you, I am trustworthy. On the other hand, if you have that presumption that people can be trusted and you're using technology as a set of enablers, you'll still get all the benefits of that monitoring. It's always going to be pre present there, uh, but you'll actually get better results because people will be more willing to take the risks that they'll take if they trust you as having the right intentions. Um, I actually love technology as a way to monitor myself. It keeps me more accountable, whether it's using Google Calendar or other kinds of reminders to get things accomplished. But that's because I'm responsible for that monitoring, right? right? right. It's not some boss telling me, I, I checked in, you're three days behind on your project because uh, I can see it yeah. through your calendar system. Um, so I would that makes think sense. I would message bosses like start out with the right set of intentions um, because we already had the great resignation. We're going to have that continual great migration because of technology. It's so much easier now for me to make a living with a laptop than it was 10, 20 years ago. So if you don't act as if I'm trustworthy, then I'll actually validate it uh, and leave and you won't and have find some find somewhere, somebody that does. Right. You know, 20 years ago, uh, Fast Company talked about the free agent nation, right? Well, it's been more than delivered upon in that respect. Uh, and I think people will, you know, they're going to continue to see themselves more and more as free agents. So what is this deal you're creating with me and how are you using technology to to make right. that deal valid or not? That's how I'm going to decide to stay with you or not. Well, that that, that feeds in. I had uh, there's, there's two sort of they're not academics, but they're well, one is an academic. Um, one is a journalist who pays attention to, to academic research. That's Dan Pink and Cal Newport. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, Cal Newport's at Georgetown. Um, he's an academic, although he's a computer science academic who I think probably is making a whole lot more money making it, making, uh, you know, an analytics or analysis about, you know, what's going on in the work world. But, you know, one of the things that people are talking about, and it really kind of comes from his work, is this idea of a deep, the deep work movement, I think is what they're calling it. And it, he's, his premise is he's calling into question, really, I won't say the benefits of technology because that's not true, but communication platforms specifically around Slack and email, uh, you know, chat chat platforms, um, you know, those were really offered up and, and I'll say sold, but really just adopted writ large because we believed in the benefits of productivity and efficiency and, you know, more communication would be better. And his argument is that that's not true, and I find it persuasive. But I'm curious: is there any research that you're seeing that that sort of points to these sort of hyper communicative organizations, while there may be problems productivity or efficiency wise, are actually higher trust or lower trust? Are you seeing any inter any implications there? Absolutely. Now, again, you know, I can't cite the articles, but I can get them for you if you want. But first of all, there's you know the the basic research that's showing that. Every time you're interrupted, it takes at least 15 minutes to get back into your train of thought. So now I am a founding member of the Instant Gratification Society. I want immediate communication. I, I think everybody's a member, whether right. they know it or not, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I want instant feedback, except when I really don't need it. 
so that I can concentrate on getting the job done. So as much as I've used Slack or other communication media uh, channels before, uh, I've deliberately not created a Slack channel for my teams uh, that I'm leading here at the University of Michigan Flint because we're already inundated with Zoom meetings, with email, uh, even text messages you know, from uh, bosses or colleagues and so forth. I have so many interruptions in my day that I'm not getting any of that deep work done. I'm a you know, big fan of his uh, work on deep work. And what I've had to do uh, even before I came here, but now especially here, is I'm gonna have to start carving out Fridays for myself. If that means I have even more hyper-scheduled, you know, Mondays through Thursdays, so be it. But if I don't get a day away from the madness, I'm not gonna get any thoughtful work done, whether it's strategy for the business uh, school, the school of management, if it's, um, I am still doing research. I think it's important to still be in the thick of that, even as a dean. Uh, I haven't had nearly the time I've needed over the last two months to get back to a paper with my global team, right? So I need to start spending those Friday afternoons or Friday mornings or whatever that is, because um, it takes me at least an hour to kind of get in the groove of it. And the next payoff is that next three to seven hours. Right. You know, I'm going to get 10 times. Everybody knows that. I mean, if you get some quiet time, you'll get 10x the benefit of an equivalent amount of time when you're interrupted every day several times. So for me, I think um, it's only going to get worse. You know, I don't think uh, the technology is going to get less intrusive. Um, so again, here's another way of you got to be intentional. Right. If I want to not just be an intentional leader, if I want to be an intentional human being, uh, I've got to create that quiet time. Um, I think as I get older, I get less extroverted or I don't know what it is, but uh, I find that I'm maybe it's technology is the biggest factor, not age. Uh, I'm craving more and more of that quiet time uh, because I have less and less of it. So yeah, and I have a I have the sense that part of the motivation for uh, working from home is it's a little easier to get quiet time. I mean, you can step away from the computer. I mean, I I know there's monitoring and there's other things, but it's easier to create some space. I think. Um, the same reason you used to go home and write, right? Or when I was working in a previous job, I used to go home and write my credit reports at home so no one would come bother me at my desk. Now, the computer can still bother you, but you also at least have some control of it. You can turn it off. You can close the lid. There's things you can do. In fact, you know, to get back to your earlier question about how should bosses use that technology as, uh, as it relates to trust, um, I think it's fine for bosses to say, I'm going to do uh, an even better job of monitoring outcomes because I have so many more ways to measure outcomes now than I did 10 or 20 years ago. But I'm going to liberate you by not monitoring the process and by, in fact, serving as your coach. That's one of our chapters in our new book is the leader's coach. How can I help you with these processes, with these systems to generate those outcomes we both want to achieve? Right. Uh, so if I measure process rather than outcomes, that's going to undermine trust. And if I'm not coaching you, if I'm not helping you through those processes, that's also probably going to undermine trust. Yeah. Um, last one, you mentioned Free Agent Nation, uh, which Dan Pink wrote a book called Free Agent Nation uh, back in the day. Uh, and he's gone on, obviously, and written a lot of other books. Again, not an academic, but someone who's pretty astute as a journalist. Um, and, and his book, Drive, I found, uh, again, a, a very persuasive book in this idea of, you know, autonomy and mastery and purpose are what really create motivated employees. I'm curious how that rubric fits in with sort of your rock concept of trust. Do you see a good bit of overlap there? 
Absolutely. In fact, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Dan uh, and his work and Drive, I think, is just another great example of it. Um, when I started out doing my work on trust, um, I was blessed to have as a cohort member of my doctoral program, Gretchen Spreitzer. So she's a professor now back at the Ross School of Business. So she's come back to our uh, business school where we both did our PhDs. So as I'm studying trust in the auto industry, she's studying empowerment in the auto industry. I'm focusing on GM and its suppliers. She's focusing on Ford and its 3,000 middle managers and how they develop a sense of empowerment. Well, one of those dimensions of empowerment, so I've got four types of trust. She's got four types of empowerment. One is to have a sense of impact on the bottom line or the results for the organization. Uh, one is to feel that you're competent. Um, but one of the most important, the one I think that aligns uh, most closely with trust now, is to have that sense of purpose, right? And mastery is related to that. So if I have a true sense of purpose, well, the dimension that maps on from trust most closely is uh, compassion. So if I really feel that my management has my best interests at heart, I am going to be much more probably going to have a sense of true purpose that also aligns with what the organization does. Uh, if I don't have that opportunity to develop my own capabilities, uh, to develop mastery, uh, if I don't have that sense of purpose that goes along with all of that, because there's not that uh, compassion aspect of trust, I'm going to go somewhere else where I can develop that. I think that's even more true for this younger generation. I think, uh, you know, like our generation saw our parents uh, work really hard only to get laid off sometimes. Uh, I think this generation of 20-somethings has seen all of that and more. They've seen what happened with their grandparents, now with their parents. And they're saying, I'm not going to tie my fate to any particular boss or organization unless I have that sense of purpose, unless I can be uh, improving myself, you know, in a master, right. uh, mastery kind of way. So last question, uh, last business question, then we'll close out with a couple of personal things. You know, when you think about the future, you already made a comment, you know, the technology is not going to, we're not going to get less of it. We're only going to get more and it's going to get better in the sense of maybe both good and bad. Um, but, but how do you see the role of trust evolving as these new technologies, you know, come to the fore? It could be new tools, the metaverse, something we haven't even thought of yet. Like net net, do you think technology will help us get better at building and sustaining trust or worse? And, and I guess that's as much turning the mirror back towards us as <laughs> right. it is the technology. Well, that's actually a really thoughtful question, one that I've actually spent a fair amount of time thinking about. Uh, Forbes magazine years ago said, if you want to be more innovative uh, as a leader, as a company, uh, you should read science fiction. Well, I've done that ever since I was a kid. I was a wannabe astronaut, then astronomer, then, okay, well, maybe like uh, William Shatner, at least I'll be able to go on a spaceship someday. But <clears throat> um, for me, you know, Blade Runner was really informative. The idea that you could techno te use technology to test the degree to which somebody's actually human or not, right? So for me, I want to take my work on trust and use technology to really get at the ability to test whether somebody is truly empathic or not. And I think that's going to become easier and easier over time. Um, Sandy uh, Pentland at MIT has done pioneering work using uh, uh, the Internet of Things and um, uh, monitors on your your face, your body, to get at the type of conversations you're having, to really get at, in essence, whether that's uh, an empathic set of interactions. So I'm going to reach out to him and build on that and start to use that technology to be able to assess, are you really dealing with somebody who's trustworthy? And for me, the most critical dimension, as I've already said, is compassion, because I think, first of all, uh, because of ruthless competition, reliability and competence 
both for individuals and companies, are no longer or much less a distinguishing factor for whether you're trustworthy. Because the incompetent, unreliable people and organizations have been weeded out. Right. This happened even within my own you know, automotive industry where the gap in quality has become almost minuscule between the domestics and the uh, international manufacturers, global manufacturers. Um, so what's really coming down to it instead then is, are you being honest with me? Am I getting the right deal? Or are you, you know, pulling some stunt behind the scenes or something? And do you really care if I'm in, uh, in need to help me out? Whether it's that OnStar device and I'm that you're there for me when I need some help, or if I'm having a complex problem I need your uh, perspective on and you're not going to take advantage of me because of my ignorance or uh, lack of, you know, technical sophistication. So I think empathy, compassion, those are the things that Karen and I are going to spend a lot more time looking at. And I want to create the technological solution that really gets at that, because I think we're seeing yet again with Ukraine and Russia, you name it, with our own uh, leaders in our country, uh, people can see through you pretty quickly when they know that you really don't care about their interests. I want to find a way to accelerate that so that we can weed out not just the unreliable incompetent leaders and companies, but the ones who are not compassionate as well. So sort of the uh, the equivalent of the Turing test. This would be the Mishra test for uh, for for trust or uh, empathy. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Very good, very good. Well, well, I always like to wrap up. Uh, you know, I've have we've been going for a while. I appreciate the time. Um, I do like to wrap up with something personal. So it sounds like you've been crazy busy since uh, you took on the new role. But what's something you've watched or read lately that it's kind of struck you and you feel like you'd like to share with others? Maybe they ought to take a maybe ought to check out. Sure. Um, first of all, uh, Karen and I are big fans of Gallup's uh, Strengths Finder assessment. So we use that with thousands of our students and literally uh, thousands now of our clients, including these bankers at Wharton uh, through the American Bankers Association. One of my strengths is input, which is um, as a kid, you collect a lot of different things, rocks, stamps, coins, and then it matures to collecting information. So I do it from a wide variety of sources, and I'm a huge fan of Audible books. So I'm always listening to books in the car. Um, I put my family through a bunch of stuff, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But a book that Karen and I both listened to as we were driving from uh, North Carolina to Michigan as we're moving here uh, was called New York's Finest. And it was about uh, uh, the police department in New York City from the 60s on, um, but through the lens of two protagonists, uh, one Stephen McDonald, who had been uh, shot um, by some hoodlum and become um, uh, paralyzed from the neck down, so he was on a respirator. Uh, and yet his ability to forgive that uh, aggressor uh, was critically important for him and the New York City Police Department to start to rebuild trust with the citizens of New York. Um, and from a completely different angle, uh, somebody known as a cave cop, a subway cop, uh, was the pioneer behind uh, using uh, uh, the crime data in New York City, forgot the term for right now, as a way to, <clears throat> I think it was Crime Stop, as a way to target where the biggest pockets of violence and, and so forth are, and then uh, to focus police activities uh, there. And even though they increased surveillance, even though they increased uh, stop and frisk for a while, because of that particular cop, uh, which worked as long as he was on the force, um, they really got at the bad guys and were able to build trust with the community. Then when that technology, which works so well, became in and of itself the purpose, right? So we're just gonna use data rather than the underlying principles of let's make the place safer for the, city, the citizens of New York. Then the trust got undermined, right? right? 
So for me, it was just amazing to see, first of all, a, a guy who demonstrated so much compassion for his aggressor uh, when he didn't have to, his ability to forgive and, and to move on in, in a wonderful way. And another guy, uh, very different kind of a character, whose ultimate values, that his intentional leadership, was to simply make this place a safer city than it was in the 60s. Right. And because of that, he used technology for good purposes and built trust with African-Americans, with white people, with you know the entire spectrum right. of citizens in New York. Then he retires and technology becomes the salvation in and of itself. So I think to sum it up, it's like, you know, if technology is in the service of the right people, the right leaders, the right principles, it can be used as a way to build trust. Um, so that's one of the things I've listened to or read that really stuck with me gotcha. um, in gotcha. the last uh, weeks. Very good. Okay, last question. Tell us about your first technology memory as a child. Oh, gosh. Several. It can't be the TV because everybody says that's a cheat. That's a cheating no, answer. It's got to uh, be something different. So actually, two pieces of technology. One was the Atari, which was my generation's. Mine uh, too. Yeah. And um, the great thing about the Atari for me was I got bored with it fairly quickly. You mastered the game and it wasn't so complex. So then it became I'd rather play pinball, but that cost me 25 cents for three games. Uh, back then it was cheap enough for that. Um, so I, I limited my con consumption of technology that could have been a huge, huge distraction, right? Because it wasn't all that great. It was somewhat entertaining. The other piece of technology came from my dad. And I think maybe that's where I inherited my love of technology. So um, he had a, a Minox or Minox spy camera, that little camera that you uh, pushed. Oh, yeah, it yeah, up, yeah. Okay. Got, you know, small pictures that could be microfilm or whatever. Yep. So he had taken it into East Germany uh, when he visited it uh, in the 60s. And so he's there pretending to kind of be a spy person with that little uh, Minox camera. So he kept it. He let us use it. Uh, so for me, that was like, wow, I, I too could become a future, you know, spy James Bond person with the use of technology. So um, I think for my parents, um, my mom was first generation um, college student. My dad came to this country in 1957 from India to work on his master's and PhD. But I think they always saw technology as a way to help their kids, uh, to excite them, to get them to want to learn. Um, and for me, then, uh, that's the way I've tried to pass on technology to my own children. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think seeing it as an augmentation or an amplifier as opposed to an end in itself is probably... I mean, at least yeah, maybe 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 young folks would say we're just old, but seems to me to we the way to to make it work um, and, and to get the most from it without, you know, succumbing to some of the potential pitfalls. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name of the Greek and uh, Latin, uh, the Roman philosophers who talked about everything in moderation. But I think that to me is a great, you know, kind of guiding principle. But yeah, that's Epicurus. So, oh, is yeah. Epicurus? Okay. Yeah. And I am an Epicurean, not a Stoic. So <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. All right. Well, listen, um, Anil, it's been great to talk to you. It's been way too long. Um, and I wish we were face to face like we were talking about, but I'll take this. This was a this was a real treat. Please tell your wife, Karen, we said hello. All right. All right, take Anil. Care. Take care. Thanks, yeah. Bob, Brian. Yeah, okay. see ya. Thanks right, again, well. Anil. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you were enjoying the podcast, We'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hell, anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 
cuttheshit underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, at cuttheshitpod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time, take care and have a great day.